podcast where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, licensed professional counselor supervisor. Today I welcome to the show Lauren Farwell, licensed psychologist, who will be discussing her practice and area of specialty, testing, assessment, and differential diagnosis. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Hi, how's it going, Noah? It's going. It's going good. Good. So we know you're a licensed psychologist, um, and you have a PsyD, right? Yes. Tell us a little bit about your experience, where you went to school, what you're interested in. I took kind of the long way professionally to the PsyD. Um, I ended up, I originally, I've worked in sales, worked in medical, worked in a variety of different fields. And I remember actually going to see my own therapist when I was uh, after college and I remember thinking, huh, uh, this might be something I might want to do with my life. So I ended up getting my master's in uh, clinical psychology with an emphasis in marriage and family therapy from Pepperdine University. And then uh, decided, I played a volleyball tournament out here in Austin and figured that I would consider moving there from originally from California where it's super expensive, can't really live near where you work. Uh, most times. So decided to pursue graduate school, got my master's in education uh, from the University of Texas at Austin, go Longhorns. Um, <laughs> still don't understand the whole, um, you know, Friday night lights thing. I mean, this is, I come from where the USC UCLA rivalry is like the big ticket in town. And it's a, it's a, it's a little more uh, little, little up, up the ante here in Texas. And <laughs> then I uh, got introduced to assessment and testing and evaluations and realized that I needed a doctorate to do that. So I applied to Baylor's PsyD program and graduated, got licensed, passed all the tests, and uh, currently have a practice where I specialize in comprehensive neuropsych and general psych evaluations, all the whole gamut, and, and do a little bit of therapy there too. What's the name of the practice? Pardon me? What's the name of the practice? I am an independent contractor at the Neurobehavioral Institute of Austin, and that is in Westlake, uh, the Westlake area of Austin. Cool. Cool. 
Um, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? I do actually. And having experience working with marginalized populations, just run of the mill, middle class, hardworking class folks, I felt that it was important for me to include uh, in line with our ethical code, sliding, both sliding scale and uh, taking insurance. Uh, so I do take Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, PPO. And my practice has made it such that we uh, can, we depending on the insurance, we can work out a one-time agreement with certain insurances and such. Cool, cool. And you have a sliding scale. Do you have weekend or evening appointments? I usually have some evening appointments and typically do not have weekends. The thing with testing and evaluations are a little challenging because they usually require an all day commitment or a half a day commitment. So sometimes I've gotten folks that have actually preferred evening appointments or starting in the afternoon. Uh, that does make it a little tough when we're doing a full comprehensive battery to start midday because then uh, you're not probably going to get me at my 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 brightest at 6 p.m. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but yeah, I've, I I definitely offer uh, e uh, evening appointments. Weekends, I think we had construction one week, so <laughs> we ended up pushing people to to weekends. But I try to engage in the uh, work life balance, have weekends for self care, so I can come back and especially in the pandemic, be able to. Uh, be full force and be able to serve serve our clients. Yeah, we got to take care of ourselves so we can do that. Um, yeah. Now you talked about being in sales. It's important. <laughs> what was that? I'm sorry. Oh, I said there's something about having just two days off in a row that just is really important for me. Oh, yeah, no, same for sure. Um, you talked about being in sales before. Is yeah. being a therapist your first career? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it was interesting how uh, life ended up happening. I originally wanted to go to medical school and become a surgeon. And I realized that uh, as much as I love treating humans and helping them solve problems, uh, this was kind of in the advent of the HMO age where I wasn't quite sure if, how that was going to go. Uh, then I realized I don't really have the motor skills uh, required for a neurosurgeon or a cardiac surgeon. And as much as I love neurology and cardiology and medicine in general, I figured my talents were better used somewhere else. Uh, they, uh, I had an old supervisor tell me, oh, you know, you're, you're very outgoing and personable. You should try sales. And I'm thinking my introvert heart just dropped. And I was thinking, no, <laughs> I mean, I can do it, but I didn't love it. And yeah. I worked in radiology for a while. I could do it, but I didn't love it. And I worked in finance could do it, didn't love it. And I remember being in my therapist's office and looking on her wall going, huh, she's got a master's from Pepperdine, which is right up the road. I could do this. This is, this sounds fun and sounds interesting. So I ended up at the, at the ripe age of, I believe it was around 27, 28, deciding to go back to school and starting the 14 plus year journey of yeah. uh, my mental health career. So what would you say ultimately drew you to being a psychologist? Assessment, definitely assessment. I feel like uh, the way my brain works as a scientist, um, I like collecting data. I like collecting multiple anchor points to help understand how people's brains work. 
Um, I also was a sociology major in undergrad. So even just looking systemically at social factors, mm -hmm. I love helping people figure it out. And I love having that moment where the light bulb goes on and people are able to go, oh, I get it. I understand myself in a way that I didn't, didn't before. And I get to use science. I get to use empathy. I get to use those parts of me that are really intuitive. I get to use the evidence base. So I get to use kind of the whole gamut to figure out what's going on. Cause I tend to see a lot of folks who have had multiple stops and have had a lot of therapy trials, medication trials, medical trials for a variety of different things and haven't quite figured it out. Haven't quite figured out what that X factor is or that, you know, I know that there's, I know what's going on, but I also know, um, that there's something more going on. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you enjoy doing? How do you spend your time outside of work? Well, before the pandemic, um, <laughs> I tended to like to play a lot of volleyball. Um, I've played, I uh, played in high school, played in college, um, before got sidelined with an injury, um, played, just played competitive ball around town, played uh, women's, played at the nationals level. Um, don't really play as much anymore again with the, with the pandemic, but still uh, like to like to dream about the days when I can get back on the court again. Um, I like to do a lot of just outdoor activities, like to just be in Austin, hike the green belt. I love coffee, I love animals. So you usually could find me back in the day at animal rescue, fostering kittens and doing those sorts of things. Love being with friends, love reading. Um, a couple of my favorite authors have, have had books that have come out uh, recently in the pandemic. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, just kind of so soaking up nature, going to the the yoga class and then Starbucks afterwards. Um, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> like it's just soaking up. I, and I love tacos. So any any anything uh, that involves food is probably a, a good one for me. I remember moving here and a good friend said, it's not where you're going in Austin. It's where are we eating in Austin? So mm -hmm. that, was, that was one of the big draws. Now my memory may be a bit uh, lacking here. I used to play volleyball too um, a long time ago in college, not in college, in high school. Um, were you more of a setter or hitter or where, where were you in the well, being 5'9 and is kind of that weird height where you can kind of play wherever, but I didn't excel forever in like middle blocker position. Um, I played outside hitter in high school. I played right side in for, for club. I would kind of was a utility player in college. So um, I can kind of play it all. And I, I played women's and I'm usually more of a hitter. When I play co-ed, I'm more of a setter just because the guys, the guys can jump a little higher than I can. So I gotcha. kind of play wherever middle blocker tends to be my weakest position just because of the footwork. I feel very much like Bambi. So I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what your experience experience uh, with, with hitting and, uh, and such were, but. Yeah, no, I loved playing volleyball. I, uh, I loved learning how to do the, uh, the jump serve. I can't remember the name of it now, but. Um, jump serve, you got it. Well, yeah. Why have I not known this before? We should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I played all sorts of sports growing up. I was uh, actually the first uh, quote unquote girl uh, on my middle school football team to play on the A team. Um, 
my boyfriend at the time was on the B team. Um, <laughs> ah. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. Um, but yeah, no, I, I enjoyed playing football, basketball, volleyball, um, track, softball, you name it, I did it. Oh, you're, you're, you're a person after my own heart here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like one of my biggest recommendations when I'm working with therapy clients or with assessment clients is just get, get moving in some way, shape or form, move the body and the mind will follow. I have training and trauma work and such. And I think that's such an important component. Plus it's just fun. Yeah. And I like to use the analogy, um, an object in motion stays in motion. Object at rest stays at rest. Um, inertia. Yeah. <laughs> of inertia. I was a I was a physics minor in college, so I uh, definitely was well versed in that. And I remember thinking that's true for so many things. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting for assessment is that my first question is, as is probably every therapist question of when a client shows up, is why now? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of a lot of times I hear the yeah we've set a lot of things in motion or I want to stay in motion. I want to keep growing. I want to keep exploring. And I know if I don't take this time right now to figure out what's going on, I'm going to lapse into depression. I'm going to go back to my old ways of doing things. I'm not going to be making progress in therapy. Um, So that's one of the things that, that I love to help people along with. And it's funny you say inertia. It's like, that's really one of the driving factors behind the assessment process is that that's set some things in motion. And even the assessment process itself and working with someone is the intervention in and of itself. Mm-hmm. It's helping people understand what therapy can be like, what the next steps can be like, what mental health professionals look like. What do you know about yourself that you may wish to pursue or wish to ask for when you pursue treatment, medication and such? What kind of rapport do you need with the person? What kind of person would you want to work with? What kind of person do you not want to work with? And all of that's really good information because I think those little those details, as you know, as a therapist, play a, a huge role in oh yeah. And and whether you know you have the the rapport, the alignment, what are the what possibilities do you have in therapy? Cool. Want to set you up for success there, you know? Yeah. Um, do you find yourself doing certain testing assessments more than others? I tend to see a lot of the comprehensive batteries where even people who've had prior testing have had more emotional and personality focused testing or more cognitive testing. And I think the piece that I get to add to the equation is what we call executive functioning, which is mental flexibility, the ability to flexibly think through problems, adapt, integrate new information, um, involves things like attention, focus, processing speed, working memory, all those sorts of fun things. And it's fun to be able to lean on the brain research in the tests we do, because a lot of them Mm -hmm. look very straightforward, if you will, like, oh, I'm drawing lines and connecting shapes and such, when really it's actually testing your ability to be able to think through problems. And there's a lot of real world applications that I get to talk through people, uh, talk to people about and tell them, oh, yes, this test you did, it may have just looked like you're drawing shapes, but this is how this maps onto real world things. And people go, oh, that explains why. Um, so I tend to do a lot more of those. Let's look a little deeper on how your brain works and how you process information, how you solve problems, and also under what conditions that can tell me where the glitches in the matrix, so to speak, are. 
that makes sense to me. Um, so diving into the topic a little bit here, uh, can you tell our listeners what differential diagnosis is? Differential diagnosis is basically differentiating the diagnosis, piecing things apart to see what is actually going on. Um, I have a lot of folks who come and are referred for testing and they have basically questions of, hey, I'm exhibiting these behaviors or I'm not responding well to this medication or my therapist and I have kind of stalled out in therapy or we're not able to make as much progress because of this, that, or the other. Is it this or is it that? Um, And at that point, what I'm doing is sort of teasing apart, well, what do we already know about diagnoses? Um, What do we have to learn? What What are the new bits of information that have emerged? And so differential diagnosis is really just parsing out and seeing, ruling things in, ruling things out, and also um, figuring out and clarifying existing diagnoses. Um, a lot of times too, I'll see response to intervention where somebody who's, who's had a lot of depression type treatments have alleviated the depression symptoms, but now we're seeing an emergence of attention, focus, anxiety, mm-hmm. mood regulation, those sorts of things. And so we want to do differential diagnosis type testing to figure out the what else is there. Kind of like whack-a-mole, kind of. Kind of like whack-a-mole sometimes. <laughs> little more scientific, a little more yeah. educated. Um, I like especially folks who have gotten a lot of um, treatment in the past, uh, talking to therapists, talking to their medication providers, getting any sort of medical records. I have found, too, that a lot of times the differential diagnosis piece, and this is where I get to um, exact some of my nerdy medical scientific knowledge is, you know, looking up and understanding medical diagnoses, how they play into mental health um, related situations, even just something that a one provider, and this is one of my concerns always about Western medicine is that we're so differentiated in roles. And this is why I love integrative medicine is because we get to take the whole person in the system into play. And so I think with assessment, I kind of get to back up and do that. I like to kind of be the quarterback of like, all right, what do we already know? What's the play? What's, what sort of things do I need to, we need to know in order to go forward? What's performance-based? What's perception-based for the client? What do we already know? What records are already out there about, about this person? What's worked, what hasn't? Um, So it's definitely, uh, definitely called me to beef up a little bit on what I know about medical interventions, consult with my medical provider, practitioner friends, and figure out what that all is. Cause I'm not the expert on that, but at least I can give a little bit of a direction of, Hey, you might want to ask your provider this because all these things are coming up here or there. Um, you may want to clarify some of these other factors too, to make sure um, that there's nothing else that like sleep, sleep stuff is one of the bigger ones that you typically see of hey, you might have a sleep disorder too. Check that out with your (laughs) medical provider because that's going to affect mood, attention, all that good stuff as well. Well, you just kind of mentioned some of this, um, but what types of presenting issues kind of require a closer look to determine whether there are other potential causes? Yeah. Um, When people have had therapy, medication, and haven't gained optimal results or relief from their symptoms, usually there's more things going on. And as we've, as we've learned in our therapy and mental health training, you know, comorbidity is the rule rather than the exception. So I think the idea is let's go on a deep, deep, you know, deep dive into what's going on with people. Um, I think the 
mostly the presenting problems or the presenting concerns is I've tried all these things. Why don't I feel better? Um, and then I get to ask questions of, well, what are, what's still there? What's persisting? Sometimes it's, Hey, I've, I've started doing some of the work and some of these things indicate positive things that yes, they have a trauma background, for example, and then they're starting to feel more emotions and they're having more emotional regulation problems. Like, well, yes, actually some of this is positive, but now we're on to the next phase of, well, okay, we also need to make that tolerable and help you use that to move through and do the work you need to do in therapy. Very cool. Um, what are some potential characteristics or symptoms that we typically don't hear about when it comes to bipolar disorder? Ooh, bipolar. That's a really interesting one. Um, it's one of those diagnoses that we were kind of, it was kind of one of those hot diagnoses where everyone was getting a bipolar diagnosis and then everyone's getting an ADHD and then an autism. Like they kind of have gone in waves. And I think some of this speaks to the fact that we just know more about these presentations and the subtleties and such. Um, I think with bipolar, a lot of folks do some of those behaviors, those kind of manic or hypomanic behaviors like excessive spending. And they be maybe more of like an adjustment disorder where they're just kind of coping, for example, with the pandemic, more people working from home. So I'm hearing, I'm seeing more of like the excessive spending. A lot of the subtle irritability, mood regulation, mood instability piece are some of the tips, tip offs for bipolar for me. Um, I'm seeing a lot of folks who may not meet quite all of the criteria for the bipolar diagnosis. And I'm really grateful for the DSM adding in the cyclothymic disorder diagnosis yeah. because I feel like, and bipolar is a really heavy hitter diagnosis and there's a lot of implications. And I think with diagnosis, one of the things I try to weigh too is being really respectful of what, what am I labeling somebody with? Cause I know labels have power and labels out when they're outside of the context of a therapeutic environment or whatnot can hold meaning. And so I really like to be really thoughtful about what all those things are and not, and, and get a lot of good data points for what it is and what it isn't. Yeah. Well, I mean, diagnoses, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, can, you know, if you're going into the military or government type jobs, those can, you know, stop you from getting a job. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And that's in, this is one of the, the joys of having a feedback session with clients after the testing is to go through diagnoses, implications of such, and talking through some of those next steps and helping them understand why the diagnosis, it holds true for them. What's the evidence and what are the implications in terms of treatment and even talking about implications in terms of other things, you know, like for example, military service, or I've done some fitness for duty evaluations mm -hmm. for, for various employers to talk about what accommodations they need returning to work, et cetera. And I think even just informing my client from the get-go, you know, the diagnoses are hold power, even explaining what diagnoses are and, you know, having them understand, yes, this is a label and this, this will get you access to services, but really here's what it is. It's a shorthand for clinicians to be able to talk about symptoms and, <laughs> and, and, and such. So I think also having a healthy respect for how it is used and what are its limitations, um, also providing some psychoed for, for clients is also important. Yeah, no, definitely. That's great. 
Um, I know you also do testing or assessments for highly sensitive people. What mm-hmm. characters, what characterizes a highly sensitive person and what different differentiates this from anxiety? Good question. Good question. I think one of the biggest things I see with highly sensitives is that hyper level of attunement. It's like if you have, you know, when you have a sunburn right now, it, when somebody touches your shoulder, it, it sets off this string of like pain and you're mm-hmm. uber sensitive to that touch. And normally it would be, you know, like a comforting touch, like you're upset and somebody pats you on the shoulder and says, yeah, it's going to be okay. Well, if you have a sunburn, it's going to hurt. And I think for highly sensitives, things are just too loud and too much and too overwhelming and too overstimulating. And what I find with a lot of highly sensitive folks is that they almost have this sort of preemptive anxiety about, oh no, I'm going to go into this place and I'm going to become overwhelmed or, oh, I became overwhelmed last time and I don't quite understand why. And so with highly sensitive people, one of the big factors I do, and in addition to doing a comprehensive battery is just even being mindful of their responses to things such as auditory stimuli during the testing session. Um, How do they respond to things like um, the annoying computer voices that come out when on some of the tests, I don't know who they got to do the voice actors Uh, the voice acting on some of these tasks, but, uh, um, and even just their responses to hot, cold, you know, being, sitting in a chair, doing testing, holding some of that frustration, um, you know, when they don't feel like they're doing well and even just like tuning into, is this an overarching thing or is it, is this a more localized thing that is evoking some of the anxiety? Uh, Mm -hmm. I find, again, they kind of go hand in hand, especially with adults. Um, I also find too that some of the anxiety comes from a, I don't know why I'm like this, or I don't know why, or I don't know what is wrong. I just know that I go from zero to 60, you know, in two seconds flat, and I I can't understand what's happening. I may be kind of off with this. Um, It sounds like some of the guess we'll call symptoms of a highly sensitive person kind of almost sound like they could mimic like ADHD in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're, they're really similar. And I feel like it's all kind of on a spectrum of, you know, there's, there's traits of highly sensitive folks that are inherent in people with ADHD because, and you know, if you think of some of the distractibility and the inattention, it's sometimes folks who are highly sensitive are paying t- attention to those internal cues, or they're overly tuned in to certain things as a result of coping with ADHD. That they're that's just kind of one of their natural predispositions, or they're distractible just because they are hypersensitive to sounds, so they're hearing mm-hmm. all the things. A lot of uh, times, I'll hear folks who who I diagnose with ADHD are like, "Yeah, I." I really have to have like a working in a, I have to work in a vacuum. I have to wear headphones. I I have to tune out all stimuli if I want to actually get work done. And so I think some of the, what we, what I call the interactional effect, especially with diagnoses, I, I I usually oppose the, okay, here's what the diagnoses are, but let's really understand how well they play together. Mm -hmm. And, and I think understanding that how these factors of somebody interact with each other helps also kind of flesh out the picture. Cause a lot of times, I mean, these are areas of strength. I mean, people who are highly sensitive have so many talents and so many gifts and so many 
ways in which they can be in the world that will make them wonderfully intuitive and empathic and bright. Um, same with kind of get with giftedness too. Oh, there's my cat. Um, um, it is that, you know, when, when harnessed and when used appropriately and when used with skills, they can be, they can be highly effective. However, if they're interacting now with anxiety, I mean, uh, I always joke with my clients that anxiety and ADHD usually don't play very well together. Uh, they, <laughs> so you have to kind of teach them to play well together and that's where therapy comes in and that's where, um, you know, training comes in and that's where education comes in for, for clients. And that's just, even just the understanding of how their brain works and having, taking the, the heat off of, oh, there's something wrong with me to, oh, these are things that are just not working well together. And how do I have them work well together? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What would you say differentiates bipolar disorder with psychotic features, whether in a depressive episode or manic episode? from schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type? Ah, great question. Um, you know, and for some of these, the devil's in the, devil's in the details. I mm -hmm. think the big, the big factor with bipolar versus schizoaffective is the mood congruent uh, psychotic symptoms. Um, and if the psychotic symptoms happen in absence of mood, then we're looking more at a thought, thought disorder like a schizoaffective or a schizophrenia. If the, the mood, if it is mood congruent psychosis, um, typically I'll look at the intensity of the manic episodes and usually that's kind of where you see some of the psychosis. So that's kind of a basic di um, differentiation in terms of behavior. Uh, one of the other things, which is why I love getting records and talking with other mental health professionals and medical providers and such, um, even, even like loved ones, like I'll do collateral interviews with parents, with spouses, with, you know, roommates at times. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll be able to ask, you know, even response to certain medications may help guide, guide the way here. And I think having multiple points of data can help differentiate that as well. And some of the subtleties are, oh, how did you respond to this intervention or how, when does, when did these things happen under what circumstances do these happen? Well, okay. And the next question I know is very broad. Um, <laughs> But what are some potential disorders that irritability may present itself in? And how do you differentiate from which disorder this may be? You go on a wild goose chase. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting because for me, it's I, I get to employ science and let's do the scientific method and ask a lot of questions and form hypotheses. And with testing, I get to test those hypotheses and ask a lot of questions on in the intake interview, and then also use the testing process as part of informing what that is. And a lot of times it's not just what the test numbers tell me, but how somebody responds to certain stimuli. For example, time tests is usually where irritability might show up. And I get to then talk with the client afterwards and say, hey, look, what was irritating about that? Or what was frustrating about that? Or what was hard for you about that? And that can help me get some really good candid insights into what's driving the irritability. Um, and there's a lot of disorders that, that irritability may present itself. Um, ADHD is one of them where folks are, you know, they're frustrated because they know they can do better, but you know, they can't. I had, I remember working with someone who was like, yeah, I can do all these really high order things and problem solving and critical thinking, but 
I can't balance my checkbook or I can't follow up on emails. I can't remember to send text messages back. I can't remember what to get at the grocery store kind of thing. And I think that's where irritability can show up when somebody can't manage their mood, when people are highly sensitive and are just working so darn hard to try to just screen out and filter and everything, and they're exhausted. That's when irritability can come into play. You know, I get a little irritable when I'm like, why can't I, <laughs> why can't I figure this out? Oh, that's right. It's, it's near bedtime and I'm trying to figure out the, the, the meaning of life and, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, solve the problems of the universe. Um, but also I'll see, you know, all the way over to the personality disorders, um, mm -hmm. folks that just have that low frustration tolerance and are irritable. It's interesting to be able to see how people describe their realities and how they understand their realities, because folks will come in and say, I get irritable and I'll want to know the conditions under which they get irritable. Is irritable even the right word? Tell me what that means for you. Help me translate. And this is where my where my, uh, my wordplay, my interest, uh, my reliance on the thesaurus and uh, learning about that, have that having that precise word to describe what you want to say comes into play. Because I also know that people have words to describe their realities. And I think for me, I get to be curious about, well, what does that actually mean for you? Um, and so I get to weave in some therapy techniques too when I'm deciphering and trying to rule out or rule in certain things. Awesome. Um, now another kind of broad question, what are the different types of anxiety? Oh my gosh, there's a lot of different types of anxiety. Um, I know. <laughs> and, well, and it's interesting because folks will say they're anxious or say they're depressed or say they're, you know, feeling, feeling a little squirrely or a little, little bipolar, a little ADD today. Um, I think those are really broad categories to describe pockets of symptoms. And I think the different types of anxiety um, involve, you know, are they more, is it more general? Like I just approach the world from a more anxious place or am I more sensitive to just, you know, internal external cues? Does it happen under a more so focused, like social setting? Like a lot of people have social anxiety where it's hard to just interact with people. Um, but the rest of the time, they're not super, super anxious. Uh, there's some, you know, of course with little, little kids, there's separation anxiety. There's, and some of that's related to attachment things. Mm -hmm. There's more like things like phobias, um, that, that are definitely part of that anxiety spectrum. I also see, um, things like obsessive, obsessive thinking, rumination, um, in sort of like that anxiety related disorder, related disorder kind of realm, um, trauma, post-traumatic stress symptoms, um, even that like anticipatory anxiety resulting from, you know, having that second secondary anxiety related to a primary event that happened or experience that someone's had. So I think even just understanding when the anxiety comes out also too, I also get that um, people's perceptions of their anxiety um, can be can be skewed by how they just understand the world. Like I know a lot of folks with anxiety will just avoid a lot of certain things mm -hmm. that make them anxious. So therefore they're not as anxious, but yet they still have conditions under which they get anxious. So it can be very general. It can be very, it can be very broad or it can be very uh, specific and, and focused. And I also think again, comorbidity is the, the rule rather than the exception. So 
I always want to know why, what, what's driving the anxiety, what conditions are helpful, what conditions are not helpful. And, you know, uh, something that I've seen a lot of lately um, is like pure OCD. Um, what would you say characterizes that? Mm-hmm. It's, it's very much like a tension release kind of thing for the compulsion piece. And it's like, if I, if I do it, there's very much a negative reinforcement, removal of aversive stimuli sort of thing. Um, it's interesting because one of the differential diagnostic questions I've gotten a lot recently too, um, mostly I would imagine the pandemic is giving people more time just to ruminate and think more about things is um, differentiating. Is it just, I'm running the same anxious thought over and over and over again, and I'm not quite catching it and going, wait, stop. No, here's where I can find evidence for that versus the obsessive thinking, which involves somewhat of, you know, things that are not super related. Like I need to make sure that I touch the door 20 times or else something bad's going to happen to a family member. I mean, there's definitely those thinking patterns that don't quite line up um, in, in reality. I mean, if, if, if you were to ask somebody like, yes, I realize that they, these two things aren't connected things, I think like superstitions, for example, lucky numbers, and not everyone who has a lucky number or lucky color um, has OCD, but it's those kinds of things where they have to think through or run those traps in order to avoid negative things or in order to protect themselves um, from something. So it, again, it is a really fine, fine line sometimes. And I think this is where not just ask, doing um, questions about anxiety and OCD, but also doing performance-based measures and also broader-based um, measures, uh, personality measures like the MMPI and, mm-hmm. um, and such will help tease out some of those ways of thinking and feeling about the world. And also I, and also a big question I ask is what helps, what's helpful in alleviating these, these symptoms. And if it's more of an anxiety versus an OCD, those can look a little bit different. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, Now autism spectrum disorder and ADHD have been conceptualized to be on the same spectrum. What are your thoughts about this and how would one differentiate the two? Ah, great question. And it's, it's interesting to, you know, to kind of back up. I mean, we're learning a lot in the research of these are not just distinct entities. I mean, there's lots of traits inherent in both in the neuroscience literature. Um, if you think from, from an impulse regulation piece, um, ADHD and autism spectrum have both have those those characteristics, but how they manifest are a little bit different. For example, with autism spectrum, there's a really big social reciprocity piece. Um, and for some folks who are bright and for some folks who have had the support and learned how to translate, if you will, like, yes, they can go into a social situation and they have those self-regulation mechanisms of, oh, I'm at a work meeting I need to say these things and I need to not say these certain things. And I need to look for these sorts of cues and um, wording for when it's my turn to talk when it's not. Um, Whereas ADHD is more of a self-regulation piece in terms of, 
I need to make sure that I'm not responding to stimuli, distractions and such. There's a lot of overlap. And I think when, what makes diagnosis a little tricky sometimes is it some, and especially now with, with the, the internet and WebMD, people will talk about, Hey, you know what I, but I check off all these boxes like, well, yeah, but let's look how functionally this impairs or functionally this shows up. And for ADHD, typically there's not as much of the social reciprocity component. Um, the restricted interests, um, the restricted interest can be in that service of like the hyper-focus piece. So I think asking some of the questions to help differentiate, are you hyper-focused because you're interested in this restricted interest? Or is it more of a, hey, I'm I'm finally found something that's catching my interest and I can focus on it and I can run with it. Okay. You know, uh, one thing that's coming out with research is that uh, people who are autistic mm -hmm. have gender dysphoria at a much higher rate than, you know, the general population. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? That's a great question. And it's funny, a colleague actually asked me that the other day and, and as an observation of, why, why is this, why is this happening? I imagine that, you know, what we know about the autism spectrum and the brain is the, the lack of pruning of the neuronal pathways and the axons in the brain or the neurons in the brain. So there's just a lot more information. And honestly, I feel like there's so many things that we take in at face value about ourselves and the world. And I think when, I think just those pockets of, I can question this and these these are things that I've, that I'm wondering about and these nuances and these subtleties about gender and sexuality that I'm wondering about. I also think too, from like a social lens, when folks are having learning social skills, when they're on the spectrum, sometimes it's a, I don't know how to try this on, but I'm going to try it on in a way that an autism, some, someone with autism does to try to figure out how does this work for me? And I think it raises a lot of really rich, rich questions. And I think there's some, some more existential freedom to ask those questions when you're on the spectrum, because there's, there's just, there's so many things about just reality that are very different in perceptions. And I, that would definitely include gender dysphoria and even just challenging what, what is that? I mean, I think we we know that gen gender is not a, a, a binary concept for sure. And I think just even embracing some of those nuances, um, I think would be something that somebody on the spectrum would be more open to question, which I think is a beautiful thing. And I, I, I love being able to talk through those, those matters in a sensitive way with, with folks to help them figure that out and also help them figure that out in a way that is authentic and congruent for them and make sense in their brain um, and make sense in their reality. Yeah, I think I love everything you just said. Um, I think that oh, part good. of it has to do. <laughs> well, I, think I, that, I could also know, say too that I work really hard to come from, I mean, as a, as a cis female, I, and, and, and white at that, I, I, I feel like I have to work especially hard and be very mindful of, those areas of marginalization, those areas of differences, because they matter. They really matter. And I've had a lot of clients who have come in with experiences with mental health and medical providers who haven't quite gotten it and haven't quite been able to have that conversation in a sensitive way. And 
present from a place of, Hey, I don't, I don't know everything. I'm going to, I'm going to start, start with what I, you know, what, what I know about you and apply it for, for what, what we need to, you know, talk about in terms of the testing, but also do so in a way that's accessible. I mean, which involves, you know, even just asking, Hey, what are your pronouns? Um, and, and also for assessment reports that can get interesting because, you know, we're writing legal name, chosen name, gen, you know, gender pronouns. Um, it, it's been a, it's been a interesting exercise in cultural competence that I'm, I'm, I, I know I, I'm, I'm an avid learner and um, I want to make sure that my reports and the work that I do with people is validating and culture, culturally sensitive. So I'm a lot, as, always asking a lot of questions and hey, what does this look like for you? Because that's not my experience and I want to understand. So I tell your story appropriately. Mm-hmm. I always ask in my initial session whether there's any concerns regarding gender or sexuality because, you know, I may have a cishet person sitting in front of me, but I don't want to make any assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that sometimes, well, a lot of the time, when we ask a question like that, um, we can get some answers that perhaps surprise us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm loving that people are feeling it more open with the ambiguous. And I've had mm-hmm. a, num- a number of people say, I'm, I'm the third box, I'm non-binary, I'm genderqueer, I'm exploring, I'm curious, I'm, I don't know. And, and having that be, be okay. And also then talking through the logistics of, well, okay, I do, I do need to designate a pronoun when I'm writing a report, but I also want to make sure that I tell your story in a sensitive way and in a way that's accessible for you. And that when you pick up and read the report about the testing you did with me, that you see as close of a reflection of yourself as you can. And so I do, um, I do ask a lot of those questions too, because, because they matter and even just how to designate those, those things. Also in terms of just wordplay as well, um, using a, the, the, they, them pronoun, I've definitely had to uh, ask for a lot of guidance about understanding what that is and what that means. And how can I, as a, you know, as a cis white female mental health provider, how can I understand that in a way that I can write somebody's story? I don't need to understand that for them I need to understand that to write their story and be a culturally competent provider. So I think that's also a piece inherent in assessment. And I think we're learning a lot more and there's a lot more research about, uh, you know, gender norms, um, you know, and and I think with assessment, we're still kind of catching up with a lot of those things. So I think relying on the research and peer consultation about how, how are we doing, how, what would be given our limitations, if there are, for example, a test that has just male and female norms, how do I do, how do we do that? And how do we make those judgment calls or whether something's significant versus not on a, on a test because the male, female might be slightly different in, in certain respects. A lot of times there, there's negligible differences, but in certain, in certain tests like personality and emotional functioning tests, there, there may be some variance. Excellent. I love that you have done some work around that. Um, Definitely have. And, and it was interesting. I have seen, um, especially living in, living in Austin, I'm especially fortunate to, to see a lot of uh, transgender youth 
come my way for testing. Um, a lot of uh, transgender, um, genderqueer, non-binary individuals come my way for testing. And a, and a lot of folks have said, yeah, I'm actually pretty good on, on, on that piece. And I want to make sure that here's these other things that are going on. And here's some other aspects of my reality that are not quite lining up. And having, taking that into, in melding that into the piece of their story and even highlighting, oh yeah, this is, this may be something that has been, that you have a lot of support around, but have you thought about the impact on these other, on the, on these other aspects or having conversations about, um, I don't know, going forward with, with other things like such as jobs, such as family, um, even just within within oneself of just having that sense of resolution and, and as a society where where I we definitely want to be we have the boxes that we need to check and, and this and that which I think we're we're growing and we're understanding more need for more if, if we can't do away with the boxes we need more boxes um, but also how to Absolutely. weave this all into the identity of the individual sitting in, in front of me and it's it's a really so it's a powerful process to to be able to witness and be a part of and navigate with someone. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I know as a trans person myself that sometimes when you go to the doctor or I mean any medical or mental health professional, you are concerned that the provider will blame whatever is going on on you being trans. Uh, so I, I'm glad that you differentiate <laughs> to use the word of the day um those things um yeah there's a so, lot of components that go into i mean and, and with assessment i mean we think like formal training and cognitive testing and neuropsych testing and i think we have to take the whole person into account and i have to understand what are those areas of struggle and also be able to have a context for things like yes okay you're having a lot of anxiety related to your job or related to attention functions. I also would imagine that too underlying all this as well is also that hypervigilance and the need to be more mindful of one's, um, you know, one's gender identity, for example, at, at work or wherever, wherever you may go. And I think with the pandemic, I think we're, we're getting to open up a lot of pockets of conversation of, what's kind of running in the background that's that's sucking our energy and our time and our emotional you know capacity or our frustration tolerance if you will and i think just knowing the being able to acknowledge hey you know this this seems like this is the this is anxiety and adhd for example and also know too that these are some wires that could get tripped in terms of things running in the background or just things to be present to things to be aware of um, that may that may also be be a part of your story. Awesome. Okay. Um, going back to bipolar disorder for a second, what would you say are some characteristics or symptoms that maybe aren't in the DSM-5 um, that kind of tip you off to somebody being bipolar? Um, one of the first pieces that usually raises my differential diagnosis flag is just that persistent state of mood dysregulation or mood fluctuation or hot and cold. I'm happy one day and I'm not the next day. Um, that kind of inconsistent, I don't have control of my emotions and I can't really predict which one's going to show up or that kind of vacillation between 
like I felt really good one day, but then the next day I'm just plummeting into depression. And sometimes we just, we have a situation where it's unipolar depression with anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the idea of just, I can't regulate my mood and the, there's ups and downs usually will tip, tip off my radar to let's explore, let's understand what are those ups and what are the conditions under which that they happen, how often, and then taking off some of the, the various criteria with um, the, in the DSM, but also understanding too contextually is, is this more of a situational, you know, factor? Is this trauma related? Um, are we looking more at like a per, like personality ingrained personality traits? Um, I think some of that mood regulation piece tips off that question of, okay, what's, what's causing, what's, what's up with the ups, if you will. Mm -hmm. Now, the next question is uh, probably a long question. Um, What would you say differentiates major depressive disorder, bipolar depression, dysthymia, and cyclothymia? They're called different things. I'm just kidding. I think a big one for me is how does the depression show up? Um, With major depression, you see the really low lows. Um, And I'll usually ask the questions of, you know, the traditional symptoms we see, crying spells. And this is kind of where too, knowing and being able to have the differential uh, consideration of highly sensitive person in the background, also in terms of ADHD, sometimes folks are just not paying attention or they're really good at pushing and aside and compartmentalizing their feelings. So it ends up in a major depressive type of episode. Um, bipolar depression, again, is, is kind of in the same vein of, do we also have the history of a manic or a hypomanic episode? Um, a lot of times folks who, are, who have bipolar uh, or bipolar depression, as they call it, um, have a lot more of the low lows, but a lot of the medications for depression will kick them right up into a manic episode, which is also mm-hmm. pretty problematic. It's also kind of hard to, to treat that kind of depression is because the hot, when they're in a high or a manic or a feeling better kind of state, they have energy, they have an interest in doing things, they're productive. It's, it's kind of hard to go, no, we need to moderate that too a little bit. Um, so some of these differentiations are not just behavioral and symptom presentation, but also response to treatment as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, with dysthymia, I kind of describe dysthymia as like just low grade, depressive, like low motivation, low self-confidence, just that kind of permit, like pervasive pessimism. Um, kind of like Eeyore, just kind of like, okay, it's just not going to work out anyways. It's like that kind of side, you know, thought undercutting the, yeah, I really want to try this new thing. It's going to be great. Yeah. But I remember last time I did and it didn't go so well. So by the time you get to the thing or the event or the endeavor, you're already kind of behind the curve and you've already kind of half talked yourself out of it. So, um, I'll also liken it to, you know, when you spill something like a sticky drink on the floor and even though you've cleaned it up, you're still, it's still a little sticky on the floor and you still have a a hard time. Oh, there's the cat again. Um, (laughs) We have everyone wanting to participate in. (laughs) Um, But that's kind of how I describe it. I like to use a lot of metaphor too, to help people conceptualize these really broad phenomenon of 
how is this? I mean, how, what is this like? How, help me understand. Let me have this in a more tangible, usable fashion. So dysthymia is kind of like that. My feet are in cement or I'm walking, trudging through mud, or I'm kind of have my feet stick into the floor. Like it's just a little harder to get motivated, get going, get, you know, um, um, how do I, how do I say this? Just kind of circumvent myself, get out of my own way mm-hmm. <laughs> for things. Um, and cyclothymia is probably the closest to that rapid mood change and mood fluctuations, ups and downs and ups and downs. And um, I think where we don't quite meet the criteria for a mania or a hypomania episode, we don't quite meet major depressive criteria. So it's kind of this persistent state of, I can't regulate my mood. And I see a lot of youth who will present as I'm just constantly irritable and everyone's getting on my nerves adults of like, yeah, like I just, I just get frustrated and I just quit things prematurely. Um, those kinds of things. So I think some of it is in the severity, the behavioral presentation, um, frustration tolerance is a big one, especially for the bipolars and the dysthymias and the cyclothymias. Gotcha. How would you tell the difference in like, uh, adolescent, of like cyclothymia versus DMDD or disruptive mood dysregulation disorder? Great question. Um, I think, I think for those two diagnoses, a big one is behavior. And I think with DMDD, the criteria is that the episodes are like daily and they're big. Um, hence the word disruptive. Mm -hmm. And, um, I I think for differentials, I, I think sometimes too, I find that people are kind of on the, on that, that spectrum of like, well, they, you know, in one setting, it could be one way, one setting, it could be the other way. I think on, on other terms too, in ter- with diagnosis, it's okay. What are, what are the practicalities of, of this? What would a provider need to know? What are kind of the leading symptoms of these? And I think with disruptive mood dysregulation uh, disorder, there's a big behavioral component where cyclothymia tends to present more with a mood, mood, uh, fluctuation component. Okay. Gotcha. I know DMDD is something that's not talked about a whole lot, um, but I've seen a lot of adolescents diagnosed with it. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, I mean, it was a new DSM five edition, much like cyclothymia, which I think for adolescents we needed because we were seeing a lot of back to your bipolar question. I mean, we were seeing Mm -hmm. a lot of adolescents diagnosed with bipolar disorder when it wasn't quite that. And there were some other just behavioral things that were missed with the bipolar um, diagnosis. And even having gone to seminars about pediatric bipolar disorder, I mean, even the experts were still out, you know, before the DMDD diagnosis, there was still that pocket of, yeah, but this doesn't quite fit in terms of the unregulated behaviors um, in addition to the emotional fluctuations. And also too, the big question that I, that I talk with uh, parents about is also how much of this is just normal adolescent behavior and also how much of this is environmental and how much of this is situational, especially with the pandemic. Um, Mm -hmm. And also how much of this, I mean, we may also be dealing with a highly sensitive person too. So that may also be part of it. It's like, well, no, they don't have, they're, they're dysregulated because they have so many, you know, additional sensory experiences going on. Okay, very good. That's a, a lot of really good information. Yeah, and these are great uh, questions too, because I think a lot of times too, people will look up 
symptoms on the internet. And again, it's the WebMD phenomenon, which I love mm -hmm. that we have a new class of educated consumers of mental health services and diagnoses. And it all, and so that gives me a good starting point to go, well, you know, what is this, what does this mean? How does this show up functionally and behaviorally? And also what are some of the implications with these, with these diagnoses? Awesome. Awesome. Um, what are some misconceptions that people have about testing assessment and differential diagnosis? Um, I think the, the biggest one is that, well, I'll start with testing. Um, and usually in my spiel of talking about the testing process, it's, uh, you know, it's not like school testing. And so even just going into some of the science and the data and how we got to the numbers, it is, it's a, a skill of how to convey this information without getting lost in the details. Um, so for example, explaining standard scores to people, it's not like getting a hundred on a test. No, a hundred is actually average when you're thinking of standard scores. Mm -hmm. What is a percentile rank versus a percentage? So explaining some of the psychometrics of things, what do the numbers mean? Um, but also in terms of testing, you want to convey an approach of, well, it's not testing like school testing, but we want you to do your best so that we can see areas of strengths and weakness. And also one of the misconceptions is I have to do my best and I have to do well. And it's, I, I guess for me, I try to normalize with the clients. No, I want to see your strengths and your areas of weakness. Some of these areas of weakness may be relative weaknesses where you're average in some ranges, but or in some areas, but you're gifted or very highly talented in other domains. So that drop-off is going to be a relative drop-off. You're still doing well and you're still performing within normal range. However, it's going to represent an area of, of weakness. Like for example, I'm, I'm an athlete. I'm really good at volleyball. I'm horrible at soccer. I mean, my God, you do not want me on your soccer team. Softball, put me in center field and <laughs> or right field and you're probably okay. Um, but, you know, it's, it's kind of like that. And I think just even explaining the idea of strengths and weaknesses, I also will, will joke that it's a little unfair of me of uh, people coming in and telling me what they're not, not so great at or what they're struggling at. So I give them tests that do exactly that and test those, you know, <laughs> poke, poke, the, poke the sleeping bear. It's like, okay. <laughs> so I try to infuse a lot of humor and a lot of normalizing and a lot of just rapport building to try to take some of the heat off of that testing, you know, because most people don't have, if they haven't done any psychological testing before, the closest they're going to think is like the SAT or the, you know, standardized testing or school testing or whatnot. Um, and in terms of assessment, you know, explaining to people that it's not just the numbers, it's multiple points of data, it's the interview, it's it's your own perception of yourself. It's how you perform. Um, I've had folks who come in and, and they're like, well, you know, I want to, you know, I, I think I'm having all these executive functioning problems, but then their executive functioning testing is pretty intact. So my next question is then, why is that so? What is, what is evoking that, that misperception of one's abilities? Or are the conditions under which they're trying, trying to, uh, you know, um, they're, they're trying to do certain tasks doesn't quite work. Oh, I know which, or you want to come say hi. Don't you? <laughs> Wants to knock things off the shelf. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's uh that's my cat for you. Yep. He's a, 
he's a one one year old kitten and he is just full of full of play today so um so in terms of differential diagnosis um some of the the piece that i like to share with with uh, clients is let's talk about just the purpose of diagnosis and there's a lot of psychoeducation in terms of what is diagnosis um and i think there is power in labels um, I have people that say, well, I just need to know what I am because that will help me take some of the heat and the stigma off of, you know, it's either that or I'm a bad person. <laughs> and I think some of it is normalizing that, yes, there is a constellation of symptoms out there that describes what you have or what you are or what you're, what you're, what you're feeling and also helps prescribe a track of what's going to be the best options in terms of next steps. And because if it's anxiety versus depression versus an adjustment disorder, the next steps for treatment, for care, for coping skills, building are going to look very different for medication. It's going to look very different. Um, but I also like to let people know what are the limitations of diagnosis and where can, where, where, where maybe where we may not be as well served in focusing on the diagnosis. And I take some of a therapeutic approach in that, in talking about, well, okay, here's, here's what this is, or here's the label for it, but here's how this plays out functionally. And here's how this plays out behaviorally. Um, Cause not all anxieties, depressions, ADHDs right. are, are alike. And I think when I get to map it onto the person's unique experience, um, that's, I think, where's the bit, the, the power is in things. Now, earlier you talked about working with clients who are uh, transgender or non-binary. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what kind of experience do you have working with other vulnerable populations, such as those who are undocumented or BIPOC? Mm -hmm. um, actually, quite a bit. Uh, I did my internship at a juvenile uh, detention facility. I've worked in with severe mental health populations in hospital settings, residential treatment settings. Um, and... I think when you come from a place like Los Angeles and you work in a place like Austin, you're going to have people of color. You're going to have people of, of various cultural identities. And I think there's a piece of, okay, there's stuff that I don't know. The client is the expert on their experience of, of this. And I think even just opening up that space of, Hey, I'm acknowledging this. And I acknowledge that I, you know, that, that this is a safe space to talk about these things. These things may be relevant. And with assessment, I think the, I, I, I have a little more leeway to ask some of those really vulnerable, tough questions from the get-go because I'm gathering information and the client's purpose with me is to figure out the, the, what, the what's going on, what's going right, what's going wrong, and how to fix it. So I get to ask more of those in-depth questions. Like I feel I feel really uh, privileged in, in some sense to be able to just cut straight to the chase and, and ask, hey, how is this impacting your life? Um, so I have a lot of experience with that. I remember even working in uh, juvenile detention and just even taking into account cultural factors of, you know, the client's going to return to a family that is lives in, in gang infested territory and has siblings that use, use drugs and are gang involved. And so me saying me as a cis white female therapist saying, well, you know, you should stay off drugs altogether and you should avoid negative influences. 
doesn't really honor their experience. So I remember having conversations with youth and going, okay, what is possible? What is your home look? Tell me what your experience looks like. And then let's try to enact coping strategies and ways in which you can keep your head above water. You can stay on the straight and narrow and even just helping them know what their resources are. And I think taking that stance of curiosity is, has been so invaluable, even translating to my, my, my cis white um, male therapy and client and uh, assessment clients and just asking what are those things, what is possible and helping them take some ownership and tell me what their life is like, because I think we can make a lot of assumptions. And my goal is to have, have, have this be a relevant process for people. So quite a bit of experience um, and also realizing too, and also conveying to the client that I don't, I don't know what you are going through. And I also know that I am still learning. And so coming from a place of curiosity, being willing to make mistakes, um, being willing to roll with it, acknowledge it, move on, um, being willing to stay in the conversation, be willing to have somebody say, no, that's actually, you, you don't say it like that. It's, it's, it's this and be able to be graceful and deferential and respectful um, and also be in a space of, Hey, you know, I'm, there are things that I, I also bring to the table that I know that I can help and where can I make sure that they line up so that we can get the client what they came for. Yeah. Okay. Uh, kind of a scenario question here. Mm. Um, a client calls and makes an appointment for testing and assessment. Mm -hmm. What's the process from there? What does that look like? It's a great question. And it's one that I've gotten asked uh, quite a bit because I think there's a mystique about how somebody procures testing. And it's very much like calling and setting up a therapy appointment. Um, call, make a make a appointment for an intake interview appointment where in that that appointment I'll talk more about, hey, why why refer why were you referred? What sort of questions do you have? What's going on? Getting a good history, what's worked, what hasn't worked. Um, and then we have uh, a, a testing appointment. So basically it's a series of three appointments. There's the intake appointment, there's the testing appointment, and depending on the clinical interview, depending on the paperwork that the client fills out, uh, that will help me decide the preliminary battery of testing. And sometimes it will take a full day or we'll reserve a full day. Sometimes if it's more of like focused testing, like if we're testing to rule out ADHD or autism spectrum or giftedness um, for admission to like a, a GT school, for example, um, those might be a shorter batteries. Um, but it's also very a very fluid and dynamic process where I am during the testing appointment looking at the scores, looking at performance trends, seeing did I did I get what did I get the data in this point that I needed? Oh, I'm seeing some struggles. You know what? Let's add on a couple of extra things for some extra data points. Um, so the testing day um, is a, you know half to a full day, and then a couple of weeks afterwards we have a feedback session where we go over the report, the results, talk more practically what it is, what it isn't. Um, and in the meantime, if somebody has a um, medical provider, like a psychiatrist or a neurologist, um, I'll usually make collateral contact with them. I'll, I'll reach out to the therapist and talk with them about their impressions. Um, that'll give me time too, if they're an, a youth, uh, to send out parent and teacher reports. So in the meantime, there's a lot of things happening in the background on my mm -hmm. end. 
Um, so it's, a, and it's, it's a pretty comprehensive process. And, uh, when I get to explain it to people at the intake session or remind them during the testing session, it's like, wow, there's a lot that goes into this, this process. And it's like, well, yeah, there's a lot I want to know about you. So I can, uh, send you off into the world and arm you with resources and have you know what to more of what to ask for and what would be helpful um, mm -hmm. so that you can thrive in the world and I can set you up for success. And also I throw in some book recommendations and websites and, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. So that when you get a couple months down the road, it's like, well, wait, okay, now I'm at this point. What do I do next? Aha, I consult recommendations five through 10 <laughs> and, uh, and look for some things to, to do next or some ideas. Okay, cool. Um, now, switching gears a little bit to talk about you, um, how would you say your clients describe or experience you? <laughs> um, I definitely seemed, I, I seem to have a very personable and relatable style. I, um, some, some of this is my own personal growth and just coming with a figment of age, but I can, I can laugh at myself. I can poke fun at myself. I can, um, I can use humor in, in sessions, even in assessments where we're adding, we're, we're adding a lot of layers of data. I think the, how you do that too, um, and how you weave conversations in, and even just having normalizing a client's, um, experience of like, yep, this is one of those things that's just hard for everybody and that's okay. Just do your best. And having someone who's relatable, having someone who's non-judgmental, but not that overly effusive, you know, fake positivity kind of thing. I tend to be pretty real, pretty straightforward, sometimes a little irreverent, uh, sometimes uh, um, definitely a little, a little playful. Um, also really intuitive in reading my clients and picking up on some of those subtleties and nuances and asking about them in a sensitive, but yet straightforward way. Okay. It sounds like you're definitely the type of person who will laugh with your clients. What about cry with your clients? Absolutely. I feel like you have to be human. And again, I think with the pandemic where it's making things even a little bit more real in terms of empathizing, emoting with your clients, because um, there's no getting around them real knowing that we are, we are going through this too. And I think that has given a little bit of freedom to, emote and to align more with the clients. And even in testing, I mean, people will think it's just us gathering data, but there are times when clients need to process something or we've asked questions or there's an item on various tests or there's a task that has been especially hard. And so we get to talk more about their experiences and, you know, you can't help but feel someone's pain and, and, and hold their pain and to be able to have them reflect back to you and you reflect back to them that you get that. Um, and I, and I tend to be more of a sensitive person myself too. So some of that just comes naturally. And I think doing my own personal work helps me emote and align with my client and join with them in laughter, in tears, in whatever that may be in serious moments, in silly moments where I can be authentic and it can be in the service of the client and they can also experience me as a human, uh, as a human being. Um, Cause I think that's also where I get a lot of my rich data too, when I'm doing testing is just what people will tell you when they're comfortable with you. And 
I always try to find those access points for, for people. And I've tried and done a lot of different things in this life. And I feel like I have a, a lot of experiences, even if I tried it and I was like, I'm really horrible at this. I can at least align with the client and say, Hey, tell me more about that. Tell me more about what that is for you. Okay. Awesome. I know that that's everybody's answer differs on that. It's been interesting to hear, you know, how everybody just thinks about emoting with clients differently. Mm -hmm. Um, So speaking of the clients that I do, that I, that do come my way have also had a lot of experience with mental health providers and they can usually tell me what worked, what didn't work, what kind of interpersonal styles work for them. Um, and I think for myself being able to be versatile and map onto what the client needs, not, you know, not just to build rapport, but to also make it through the testing session. And I think even just drawing that distinction of what I, how I would be in a testing session, because the goals are different from Mm -hmm. testing versus therapy. So I think the idea of, Hey, you know, let's, let's, say lots of words of encouragement, for example, if that's helpful for a client during testing, or let's just, Hey, let's give them, you know, they need to know more like, Hey, how much longer do we have? Or how much more do we have? And I think being able to be flexible and hold the space that they need in order to provide me with the best information. So. So speaking of holding space, how would you define that? Hmm. Holding space. That's one of those, like, I might defer to Brene Brown on that one. Cause she's kind of my kind of my, uh, my, uh, my squad goals on that. I would say that holding space for me and the work that I do, especially with testing is first and foremost, remind, reminding myself in four agreement style, like nothing's personal. Um, I am seeing people who are really struggling and I'm, I'm privileged to be able to witness people in those vulnerable spaces. And I think for me being able to not just create the space for the client to be vulnerable and show me where they're struggling and also show me where they shine, but also being able to have that space be consistent across the day. So if I need to hold the space for more conversation, I have the flexibility to do that. And I think when I'm thinking in terms of the testing day, Sometimes when I meet somebody and I get to hold the space for them, it's the holding the space means I put some of those more vulnerable and evocative tests, things that may be more, more gut wrenching and sensitive. I, t- I save those for a little later when, you know, when, when I may need them to do other things with a clear head earlier in the testing session, even though I'm dying to know how they're going to do on certain measures. And that's going to provide a lot of really rich data to inform these other things. I also know that holding that space for them means, okay, giving them what they can handle, giving them things that I'm seeing and picking up on during the, during certain tests that they may need um, intuitively taking breaks with them um, intuitively asking about how they're doing. Um, and I think just tuning into them is, is a big one. And I think at the end of the day, when somebody can tell me, Hey, I really feel like I got to show you who I am. And I felt safe showing you the areas and the set of sensitivity and struggles. I think that's how I know that I've done a good job with that. Um, I think it's a lot of just deep breaths and just making making sure that I have the space, but also keeping the client focused on 
what we came, what we came here to do. Um, and also knowing when it's, oh, that's a really great topic to talk about with your therapist um, versus I need to dive in and understand this a little more for the testing process. It also involves having lots of tissues, having lots of, lots of empathy, having lots of, Hey, you know what, this sounds like a story that just needs to be witnessed and naming it as such when it, when it's appropriate. Okay. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Oh, I've gotten, I've been really fortunate and had a lot of really good supervision. And I think the, some of the best advice I'm thinking is just, is just roll with it. Just go with it, be flexible, be ready to just pivot on a dime, um, be ready for whatever. Um, and, and, and I think having volleyball training, having um, various experiences in my life that have helped me kind of just really be flexible with things um, helps me kind of just be ready for whatever and go, yeah, I can do this. I can, I can roll with this. I can make this happen. I can intuitively know how to handle those situations. Um, I can use my, um, I can use my intuition. I can use the knowledge base that I have to adapt and give the client what they need and what they need to get through the testing session and, um, and also have it be a positive and affirming and enriching experience for them and to also prime the pump then for the feedback session. So I think just being flexible and making sure I have my own stuff taken care of on the back end um, mm -hmm. in terms of self-care. I mean, I know self-care is one of those things that we, those words we throw around in our profession and sometimes we just do lip service to it. And I think for me, that's something that I really need to make sure that I do on the back end so that I can be flexible and I can be, I can kind of just, you know, be ready, ready for whatever. <laughs> I think that's kind of how I'm able to do that. So, um, I, and I think, and I've had supervisors that have very much supported, supported that. Speaking of, but what do you do to take care of yourself? Ooh, lots of things. Um, uh, it's, and it's interesting with the pandemic, just even having to redefine what those things are. Um, so for example, physical fitness is a big one for me. Um, and without volleyball, I've had to redefine how do I do that? Um, I actually do uh, mixed martial arts as well. It's kind of a weird, fun fact. I ended up getting a, um, an MMA bag and, uh, and stand for my backyard so that I can go out and do, do some of those things that I, I wouldn't normally be able to do because classes I take aren't open and such. So um, I definitely do a lot of yoga, meditation, taking some deep breaths, being in nature, um, I have animals is one of the big reasons I, I enjoy having, having pets is because you can't really be anywhere else, but present if you're with them. And I think just having friends and having outlets for, you know, things like peer consultation and having people just validate and understand and having a community of people that you can call and go, Hey, look, I need a, I need a spot check on this. So, um, I also think too, one of the things for, for self-care is just constant, vigilance and self-awareness of what do I need and tuning into those things. Um, so like regular nutrition is, is, is always a good thing. Sleep. I, I, I sometimes I do well at that. So sometimes not as well, not as much. Um, but I think using my intuition to guide what I need and being present to what I need and what needs to, you know, what I enjoy. I also think too, we're doing a lot of things in the pandemic where we're just doing it because we have to. So I think really tuning into the, 
what am I, what do I want to do and what do I need to do? Because this feels fulfilling or this brings me joy, very Marie Kondo style, but, um, but very much the, what's, what do I need right, right now? And so I think that's, for me, self-care is a very fluid and dynamic process. I'd consider it a practice. Pardon me? I consider it a practice because, you know, we don't do it. It's impossible to do anything 100% of the time, right? That's true. That's true. I, I, uh, I've had a lot of conversations and with myself and my clients of just, hey, you know, waking up and just doing a quick assessment of what do I have in the tank today? And yeah, there's some days when I may only have 20 to 25% in the tank, maybe less depending on the day, but that, but that my day will get all of that. And I will then temper my expectations. I will fill in the blanks as I need to. Um, I think for me, staying physically active is a big, a big way of self-care, even if it's just some stretching, a walk around our complex in at work, um, you know, walking the dogs, going to, going to just do something playful and lively. Sometimes it just involves doing cartwheels in the, in the backyard <laughs> of the office, which at, at a five feet 10, that's not, not an easy feat these days, but. Uh, <laughs> Gosh, I wonder if I could still do a cartwheel. It's been years. Um, we've got volleyball and we've got cartwheels on the agenda for, for, our, <laughs> for future, future hangouts here. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> uh, I did. Um, cheerleading when I was very young um, and gymnastics. So I learned some of that stuff. Oh, mad props. I, I watched uh, watched the documentary uh, Cheer and I was just, mar- I, I mean, I just marvel at people who can do such athletic feats such as cheer and tumbling and all, all of that. I mean, it's power, it's strength, it's precision, it's grace, it's style. I mean, there's just so many components with that. So. I did get kicked out of gymnastics when I was seven for being too tall. So, so there, there's always been a, a kind of a love hate thing with the gymnastics. I, I admired yeah. it. And I'm like, man, you know. <laughs> well, what have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Oh, wow. Lots of things. Um, it's interesting how, how, mental health practice and clients have just taught me so much about empathy and patience and resilience. I mean, people who come in, especially for testing are a special kind of resilient and stick to um, aspects of them. Of the, I want to know because this is important and their grit and their determination and I have seen just the depths of people committed to their mental health um, and committed to their life and committed to their families. And so I've, I've seen a lot of pain and a lot of anguish and a lot of struggles, but I've also seen that thing of the human experience that is light, that is resilient, that is strong, that is powerful. And it's really fun when people show you who they are and they tell you who they are and they don't realize that that is what makes them wonderful and that's what makes them great. And they, and I think just even being able to translate that for people, it's like, wow, that's, you didn't realize that that was an area that of resilience and strength. So I think even being able to redefine 
those things for people because they want to, they come in and ask the question, what's wrong? And I think it's also important and even if not more so important to understand the what's right and what things you can lean on in order to be the person and grow and evolve um, that, that person and, and that those embodiments of characteristics that you want to be. And also has, sometimes it's a mental reframe too of just, and even being able to reflect to clients my how I experienced them and just be able to tell them what a joy it was to work with them. Um, I've, I've learned what determination and inspiration means with people who are living these, these stories. And I'm honored to be able to do their story somewhat justice by translating it into numbers, into words, into a narrative, into a 20 plus page report that they get <laughs> with them. <laughs> That's a um, lot of writing. <laughs> it is a lot of writing. It is a lot of writing. I do, I do quite like writing and people um, wonder too about assessment. It's, it's kind of the introvert nerds dream of like, Hey, I get to, you know, work with people and I get to be inspired and hear their stories and work with them. But I also get to then immerse myself in the data and write their stories and create a narrative of what's going on, what's working, what's not, and what's next for people. I think there's so much power in that. And I love just that storyteller aspect of, of my job too, of being able to tell a client's story through my eyes. And I think when I'm able to be in that space of curiosity and anchored in data, but also in some of that intuition piece too, mm-hmm. um, I'm able to tell a really rich, rich narrative and it's pretty, pretty neat to be able to, to witness. So yeah, clients have taught me, taught me a lot. <laughs> taught me a lot about things and myself. And, um, and I also know too, that there are things that I didn't know that I didn't know that I'm thinking, Oh, wait, okay, cool. And I also have had good supervision to know, yeah, when that happens, that's when you start learning more about yourself. And that's when you start addressing those pockets of, of yourself that you want to make sure isn't getting in the way. And you want to understand more about these things. And that's got me on a, an interesting, um, you know, intellectual and emotional journey as well. And I've had clients who have shared just really cool things about the world and experiences they've had. And that's got me thinking like, oh, I, I want to try that sometime. Yeah. Um, How about happiness? How would you define that? Ooh, happiness. I think it is, you know, we, we define happiness. Like, I mean, I'm thinking of diagnostic criteria of like positive mood, but I think happiness is so much so much more than that. It involves contentment. It involves being able to have a realistic appraisal of self, others, and your environment. I think there's an element of resilience with happiness. I also know the good times like the bad, those two shall pass. And I think understanding that it's not a bad thing if you're not happy um, some days. And some days you're just meh and that's okay. Um, I have training in uh, dialectical behavioral therapy and RODBT as well. And I think the have holding that dialectic is mm-hmm. I think one of the key components for happiness of just being able to acknowledge what is and what isn't and what I'd like it to be. And also what I have right now in, in my, you know, on my plate is I think a really key component to happiness. Um, I also think too that, people will put a lot of pressure on themselves to 
be happy. I mean, and I remember that this is going to date me a little bit, but the Bobby McFerrin, don't worry, be happy. And I think there's some wisdom to that, but I also think people will say, oh, and that also means I can't be sad. And I think there's also been happiness when you get to be authentic and to be in, have that gamut of emotional experiences. And I've walked away from some very gut-wrenching, sad, heartbreaking stories. And there's been a sense of happiness that I was able to create that space for this person to come in and have me witness them and trust me to tell their story and rely on me to help them with what's next. So I think there's happiness that can be infused in all of those experiences too. Okay. Well, the next two questions are a little vulnerable. Okay. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician? Oh, Oh, okay. Um, I think times when I've had, um, uh, when I've had, uh, I came back from a knee surgery and I was working in uh, the juvenile detention center and I was walking to a, to meet with a client in detention and I misjudged and I completely just ate it. And I was going to test, test them and just stuff flying everywhere. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, I'm on the ground and this kid's in handcuffs and all the guards are looking at me like it was just the full audience of just everything. And I just was like going, okay, here we are. I don't know what I look like. I don't know. Um, But yeah, it was just complete, just mayhem of just stuff. everywhere. (laughs) And I'm thinking, oh gosh, risk management. Are there any paper clips anywhere? Did I lose a pen? Mm-hmm. And I'm just going, oh my gosh, okay. And then the client was af- laughing at me going, yeah, haven't learned to use that knee brace, did you? And I'm like going, you're right. <laughs> 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 so I think just some of that like klutzy, you know, non sequitur kind of stuff. Um, I, I think there's been other times where clients have, um, have, 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 been a little more blunt and, and said things like, I, like, I don't, I don't know that you get it and, or exposed kind of areas that I'm not quite as caught up on, um, or not as knowledgeable about. And I think my first instinct is the, oh gosh, I got to be the expert and I got to save face. And I'm going, no, I don't need to save face. I need to just tell them, Hey, you know what I said, what I said was, was incorrect. And i I misspoke. And I think making, having the amends process of, you know, the, the rupture repair of, Hey, I acknowledge that I misstepped. I acknowledge that this had an impact. How can we, how can we use the relationship and use our work together to come back together and have this be a restorative experience? In the case of the juvenile detention center, I was able to just, you know, pick myself back up and, you know, hobble around and have, have some folks help me and just, you know, be, be able to be laughed at and just kind of go, Hey, you know, this is just the thing. Well, how about therapy? Are you in therapy currently or have you ever been? Yes, I have. I have been in therapy. Um, and I am currently in therapy. And I think, uh, if I, if I, if it were, if it were my world and everyone just living in it, I would have everyone have a therapist and everyone have someone just to check in on with, you know, and I think that's some of the power in, being in therapy and doing my work as a, as a psychologist. And I do have clients ask, uh, are you in your own therapy? And I'm always grateful to be able to say yes. And, um, and I think that's important to be 
on the other side of the couch, so to speak, to be able to make sure that I'm doing my own work. And a lot of times therapy can just be wellness, spot checking, making sure I'm on the right track. Oh, wait, I'm out of the woods and I'm not in crisis anymore. Where can I find those avenues and places where I can grow and evolve? And being able to have that space to do that is, is really transformative. So uh, great, grateful to have my own, my own support, my own support system, which includes a, a very, very wise therapist and, uh, and uh, lots of really good friends and colleagues who are in mental health that I'm able to, you know, rely on and, and talk to as well. And a client tell me one time, um, she asked me if I was in therapy and I was like, yeah, you know, I've had a therapist for years mm-hmm. and she was like, so you mean I have a grand therapist? <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way, but that, that makes total sense. <laughs> One of my favorite things ever. <laughs> that's fantastic. And that, that's, uh, you know, uh, definitely food, food for thought. I hadn't thought about what that, what that is like. But yeah, there's folks who see me for testing and for, for therapy. Yes, just so you all know that you have a grand, uh, a grand therapist out there. <laughs> And there's a great grand and on all of those things. And I think being able to pay that all forward and pay that back and being able to kind of perpetuate the circle of, of wellness and, you know, support for each other. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't imagine, I remember in my training being told like, yes, it's important to have your own therapy and have your own, but I never realized like how many clients would be curious about that and need to know that and need to know things to make sure that I'm doing my work too. And I think Mm -hmm. for me, that's always a reminder of, okay, am I, am I doing everything that I can to make sure that I can show up for these, for these folks who entrust their care to me um, and their diagnostic, their diagnostic uh, testing experiences. So, yeah. And it's been, it's been enriching. There's been a lot of ups and downs and uh, traversing, different topics and such and exploring things that I didn't know needed exploring. And I think Mm -hmm. there's some magic and power in that, in that too. And having that experience and perspective to be able to convey to others that yes, there is, this is, this is a journey. This is a process. This is a, you know, this is a place where we get to figure out and find the things that are best built for us to short-term, long-term, yeah, yeah, therapy is pretty great. <laughs> oh, I love it myself. Um, so I know we covered just a portion of what there is to know about <laughs> testing assessment. I was going to say, I mean, if you have another five hours, <laughs> I could probably regale you with the tales of all the things. But yeah, it's it's definitely. I mean, and I'm really glad that you that you uh, and I were you would ask me to to talk about this particular topic because I think there's a lot of questions of like. What is testing and evaluations and assessment? What what do, what can I get from this process? Because I think there's not as much awareness of what the utility of it is. So I've been very fortunate to have very curious and um, and open minded you know providers in the Austin community who have who I've gotten a chance to talk more about about this with and just how this all works and even just identifying with what people's concerns are. And I know from a therapeutic standpoint is, Hey, I want to make sure that I have some input and I'm able to share with you um, what my experience of this client is and what my unique struggles are, where I feel like I might need some more data 
and guidance on, or what, what my, my curiosities about, um, about this client are. And I've really just been able to find that there are people that are so invested in, in their work with their therapists and their therapists work with their clients. So I always like to be able to support the good work that's going on in our Austin community. Awesome. Well, is there anything else about this topic or yourself that you think is important for both a potential client and other therapists to know about? I would recommend just making the call and schedule a consult. You don't have to know what you need. Um, I can help you figure that out. And assessment providers, mental health providers can help figure that out. Um, One of the things that I love doing with testing and assessment is game planning, the what's next. And even if testing isn't indicated at this time or the client is having some concerns and hesitations about it, we can talk through what their goals are, what their aims are, and even just recommend a path for what's next in the meantime or what would be helpful or what would be something they might need to try on. I'm, I'm thinking in terms of like readiness for change, readiness for intervention, readiness for or even just being able to plan for, hey, look, you know, we may not be able to get these answers. And I know with the start of the pandemic, that was one of the biggest concerns of we need these answers, but we also need to know more about the environment and our, our um, the constellation of the world. So even just being able to have that initial contact, I think just, you know, when in doubt, just reach out and ask the questions. Um, I think just even having that first step and being able to inform and talk about the process and also map out and talk through what assessment can offer and even just giving that element of hope and getting the inertia you know the the inertia going and people in motion and talking about like oh okay i i understand more about what this is because i think with testing and assessment a lot of it is it's kind of shrouded in this mystery and this kind of judgmental vibe of like, we're going to, you know, look at all the things that are wrong. And I think it's so much more than that. So I think just even, you know, making a call and coming in for a consult and, and seeing what, what's next and seeing what your needs are and help, you know, let helping, uh, helping me understand what, what we can do and and what, what, be, what might be the best course of action. So. Awesome. That would be the, well, that would be my best advice. Just just call. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being on the show, Lauren. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Noah, thanks so much for having me, and I, I appreciate you asking all the all the questions and having those areas of curiosity. Because, like I said, there's a lot of folks who, you know, even seasoned mental health professionals um, who do a lot of therapy work and and who are very skilled at diagnosis and you know, and, and observations and such, I think just even understanding and taking some of the, some of the mystery off of, uh, off of testing and the assessment process is awesome. So I appreciate you having me and, uh, yeah, I appreciate you know, getting to meet, meet you and have another men- good mental health provider to, to collaborate with and talk, talk through things with. Absolutely. Thanks again. Yeah. You're welcome, Noah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. 
I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Barbara Natalini Priesnitz to discuss her practice and one of her areas of specialty, past life regression. Next Quest podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Podcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.